Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for On the Money, presented by Embassy National Bank. Hi, everybody. This is Joe Moss, and this is On the Money, uh, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. And again, this show is uh, designed to help small businesses be better, and today... Um, we're going to be talking with Brian Mulligan of Applied Information, Inc., uh, located here in Sewanee. And just as a full disclosure, Brian is a good customer of Embassy National Bank. And uh, we're going to have a real good talk to him about his business, which we, we find uh, very, I find very, very interesting. Also, want to talk about how he got to where he is because the whole journey is good. And as you know, on this show, we do talk a lot about journeys. Um, hi, Brian. How are you today? Good, Joe. Thanks so much. Good, good. And then we also have uh, Kyle Smith. He's a senior lender and senior vice president at Embassy National Bank. And uh, Kyle is actually the loan officer for uh, Brian's company. And uh, Kyle's been in the banking business for probably 20 years or so, and he's lent to all kinds of different companies. And he's going to give us a little insight on um, um what a small business needs to do to prepare for a bank. So, Kyle, glad you're here, too. Thanks, Joe. Good to see you. Um, Brian, let's start with you. Talk to us about your company. little uh, elevator conversation. What do you do? Well, let me put it to you like this. Uh, we're focused in the intelligent transportation systems market. So the first thing is, what is intelligent transportation? And that's the business of applying technology to the surface transportation network to make traffic work better and safer. And that's quite uh, a difficult thing to understand in Orlando where the traffic is terrible, but nonetheless there are a lot of people working really hard to make traffic move better and safer. So we'll talk, we can talk about that a bit, a bit more later, but uh, the main thing that, intelligent, uh, that, that applied information does in this sector is that there's a huge amount of data that's become available in uh, transportation systems. And how do we turn that into information? So we've got this process of turning data into information and information into insight. And that's what applied information technologies do uh, to uh, move the transportation system forward. And, and as I understand it, and as you walked us through what you do, um, your current product helps channel all the information from a particular intersection to the correct spot. Is that, is that fair? Correct. That's one of the things we do. And we apply the same technologies in five different market sectors in, in transportation. For example, parking. Every vehicle journey starts and ends with a parking event. But what is technology doing to help you find parking and direct you and save fuel and save time? And the answer is not very much. But there's lots of things that can do. And this is all built on this uh, internet infrastructure that we become more and more familiar with and uh, doing more and more things over. And a lot of things just work better, including transportation, when they, everything becomes connected as part of this internet of things. And so um, we'll get back to the internet of things because people are going to hear that a lot today. But, for example, if I drive into a parking lot, I'll have the technology, it's, I guess we're starting to see it, but for example, if I drive into an airport parking lot, I'm going to be able to see that space A9 is available. 
Yeah, and the, and the way that uh, parking guidance works, and it's much more popular in other parts of the world. Interestingly enough, America is very has been very slow to d- adopt parking guidance systems. But the idea is, you know, we we spent a lot of money, for example, in Atlanta. Uh, on all the overhead signs and, and camera systems and so forth to make the interstates move much better. It started for the 96 Olympics. And uh, we've spent many, many hundreds of millions of dollars in Atlanta on, on the interstate. And you can maybe save 10 minutes driving downtown in Russia. But the question is, you can then spend that 10 minutes looking for parking. And uh, because uh, at Silent and the, you know, the G- Georgia Department of Transportation would say, well, that's a city problem. But the idea of intelligent uh, parking systems would be to guide you from the time you leave the freeway to which lot has spaces, which parking garage has spaces. When you get there, which floor has spaces. When you get there, uh, which aisle has spaces. And when you get to the aisle, then there's a green light that says there's the, there's the space for you. So that's how, basically how parking systems work. Now, in my, my car now, I have this uh, very uh, uh, complicated electronic panel. Yeah. Um, I can get my XM radio, satellite radio. I can tune into my iPod. Um, I think I can even hook up into a computer so that someone can track the location of my car. Um, There's all kinds of stuff going on. So would you envision at some point all of this technology is going to talk to each other? Yes. I mean, that's that's the, the grand plan, and probably that's 10 to 15 years away. So with deploying these kinds of technologies, we have to do it on an incremental basis. So there's, uh, and your data display in your car is just one of the information dissemination devices. So in other words, that can give you information. You can input stuff, but you can also get information. But electronic signs and uh, radio and uh, so forth are also ways of getting you information. And then there's also the future of getting information directly to your car, where your car would respond without input from you. Now, that's potentially kind of scary. Well, what would that mean? And they're really starting to appear in in newer models. And one of the things is crash detection. So when your vehicles, safer vehicles, when they detect that a crash is imminent, they apply the brakes automatically to reduce the severity of the crash. So that's just a start of your of you somewhat yielding control of your vehicle to these new technologies. And what we're just trying to do is carve off a piece of that big picture because that's a multi-billion dollar picture over the next okay. number of years. Well, hold that thought because, Kyle, welcome. Thank you. What, um, what about Brian's company, and we'll get into the history a little bit, is relatively new. What, what about Brian's company got you excited about what he was doing? Well, when I was uh, introduced to Brian uh, through a mutual, uh, it was another banker who I had worked with, and uh, Jess Erickson is his name, and he was excited to introduce me because he says, hey, I used to bank Brian, and he's done this before, and he knows what he's doing, and this guy is very interesting, and, and he, he knows the ropes. And uh, so we met and discussed the past and what Brian had done, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit. But uh, Brian had a, a very clear vision of the market that he uh, wanted to be in and where he wanted to go with the company. That, that was clear from day one. It was just, you know, my challenge was to address the financial needs of the company to help him get there. Um, all right, Brian, let's, let's talk about how you got where you are. Give us a little bit about your history because it's, it's motivating. All right. Well, 
you can tell that I've got a bit of an accent. It's from uh, Cape Town in South Africa originally, uh, which is where I'm from. I'm actually a civil engineer and uh, first got involved in... A civil engineer, that means you're nice to people or no, you work on city stuff or what? No, interestingly, <laughs> no. I'm actually a concrete guy. If I, okay. if, I, if I know anything about anything, it's about reinforced concrete and building bridges and rivers and stuff like that. So I uh, built a bridge over a big river in South Africa and things like that in my youth. But what uh, I got involved in the technology business uh, really when PCs were first becoming commonplace. Personal computers, and so I mean that ages me, so everybody can tell how, how ages old. me too. But that was really kind of the mid '80s, wasn't it? That is correct. Yeah, that is correct. And well, so they weren't PCs back then. We called them luggables. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. you go. And so what what that was about was uh, really applying, you know, these distributed microprocessors. In 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 in, in, in fact, in the security industry, South Africa was in, under sanctions at the time, and. Uh, security was a big issue, and so I built my first businesses in the security business. Uh, then moved on to uh, electronic sports scoreboards, and that was a, quite an interesting chapter. I built a, a business doing electronic sports scoreboards, and what we did is we made, at the end of sanctions in South Africa, we made uh, American sports scoring technology, what you see in the sports stadiums here with clapping hands and great baseball statistics and so forth. We made that score British sports. Oh. So cricket and rugby, I mean, cricket's a very complicated game to score. And they absolutely loved the, the whole concept of the statistics and things. So what we did is we wrote the software out of our office in Cape Town. I had a systems engineering business there and made that uh, these American uh, sports scoreboards out of Atlanta, Georgia, score British sports. And had a great run in Australia and South Africa and in England uh, doing cricket and rugby scoreboards. And uh, one thing led to another, and st so we started writing uh, sports scoring packages for Major League Baseball and uh, the NFL and so forth, stadiums like that. And uh, then the, did a deal to sell my company in, in South Africa to an American company here, and that was in 96. And so that, that was the software, that instead of using the book, where I score baseball in a book, you were able to automate that. That is correct. So in other words, you keep the, the, the score, and then that also allows you to then drill down as to the statistics and batting averages and, and so forth. Yeah, I was at a uh, seven-year-old baseball game, and the coach was caught around in his iPad, iPad, keeping score, doing the, uh, the, you know, all the different scoring tablature on a piece of software on his iPad. Yeah, and, and, and the seven-year-old would say, but how else would it work? That's true. And then he uploaded it to Facebook that night, and so all the parents can see what happened. Pretty fascinating. But anyway, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I mean, even that, you know, we can touch on this, this issue, but the seven-year-old uh, is called a digital native because he looks at the world and he says, how else would it work? Us older folk, we call digital immigrants. We arrived at the, the digital Ellis Island, and we've learned the stuff, like we've learned to speak English and learned to become assimilated. But we're not natives. We just don't naturally think that that's how the world would work. And that's quite interesting, as I work with a lot of younger, very talented guys. Sometimes, it, you know, this business of, uh, they just see that this stuff is obvious. I mean, how else would the world work? So, and, and you tell them about what it used to be like, and one, they don't want to hear it, and two, they roll their eyes and fall asleep real quick. Sure, because it's inconceivable to them that the old country would have worked like that. Right. So, so I arrived in America in uh, 96, as I said, and uh, we're all Americans now, but uh, the accent hasn't uh, left me. 
and uh, became involved in transportation and particularly with electronic signs and electronic uh, incident management. And it was for the 96 Olympics where we put a bunch of signs up over the Atlanta freeways to w help guide traffic. And that was the start of intelligent transportation systems here in Atlanta. And it's sort of built up over the last 15 years in, in a variety of ways. In, and, and in some ways, you know, that was the initial generation of these systems, which were very complicated to run, very complicated to maintain. And so what we're doing in applied information is saying, okay, it's time for the next generation of things that are all internet-based because this drives down the total cost of ownership and so forth, cloud computing and some of these other things that you hear about, make it much simpler and more effective to, to run systems in the new way. Um, let, I want to stop a little bit here. First, I want to remind everybody, this is On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. I'm Joe Moss, and we're talking with Brian Mulligan and of Applied Information, and Kyle Smith is here from Embassy National as well. He is uh, Brian's uh, banker. But I want to talk about last year when we met you, Brian, uh, you had just started your company, and as I recall, your 2013 revenues were about $100,000. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. And so, Kyle, when we looked at it, what did we see about all of that? Well, you know, the... The challenge with a startup company is you, you have to look forward. There's nothing to look, you know, you can look at the history, and in this case, it wasn't financial history. It was ex his experience in the industry. So we had to rely heavily on that uh, in order to say, okay, this makes sense. Let, let's, let's sit down and roll up our sleeves and figure out how to do this. Now, at that point, you had a product in the marketplace. Yes. Uh, in other words, the first two years, you know, applied information is now three years old. And so the first two years are the technology development phase. So that's really focused on building your products. And that was done by you out of pocket. That's correct. Okay. I funded that. Okay. And, and that, that out of pocket came from the proceeds of a previous company. That's correct. I okay. sold the previous company in 2008. All right. So I, I, my point to the listeners here is this, all this stuff takes time. Yeah. It, it is a journey. So don't expect that you can just go out and do this stuff overnight. Yeah, and in fact, the, the, even that's an, an interesting point or interesting way of looking at things because I come from the idea, I mean, a lot of people say, well, if you've got a technology company, obviously you need venture capital. Mm -hmm. And obviously you need to think about burn rates. And these are all kinds of things that I don't really build businesses around. I build businesses about the premise that what you're going to do is build a product and sell it for more than it costs you to make a profit and then invest that profit in the business to make more products. And so the you got to start from somewhere. And uh, what I did was maybe or maybe not the smartest thing, which is starting a business in the biggest recession since the 30s, because my wife certainly said, are you crazy? <laughs> and well, it's obvious to me. You always start. What's uh, Buffett's? Uh, be scared when everybody – no, be scared when everybody is, is uh, happy and be happy when everybody's scared or something along those lines, right? And, and that's dead right. And what I said is, I, you know, I've, got, I've done this a couple of times before, and there's no certainty in, in, in business. But nonetheless, I said, okay, if I can build this business and do this technology development when everybody else is struggling, I can get good people at really good prices to help me on this journey. And so that, that, and that proved to be true. And then by the time the market turned and people started buying, I'd have products to sell. And so that was the first two years is just really working really hard 
on this vision with the confidence that the market was going to turn, people would start buying, and I had to have a, had a set of products when that time came. So that's, that, that's how that happened. So a year ago, we were just you know, finishing off the uh, real heavy lifting of the product development side and getting out into the market and starting to sell. Now, um, let's fast forward to 2014. Remember, we had about 100,000 revenue in 2013. Um, we put together a little line of credit for you so that yep. you can draw on that to reinvest in the business. 2014 revenues are scheduled to be what? A million. A million. And then 2015 is scheduled to be what? Two million. All right. Let's, let's run with that for just a second. Um, you'd think, boy, this guy's making a lot of money. But what are you doing with all that revenue? Oh, yeah. Now, what, it, what you got to do is live lean during this process. Building a high-growth business is difficult. Building a high-margin business is difficult. Building a high-growth, high-margin business is really tricky. And that's what we're doing. And so how, how you do that is that you live lean because you know that it's a multiplier effect. Every dollar you invest is worth $10 in a couple of years' time. So what we're doing is take, you know, we've got a, a, a really nice de development team here in Atlanta, in Cape Town in South Africa, and, and some guys in India. And what we do is we focus on that team building next year's products. And so that's any pro all the profits that we make out of uh, on ongoing uh, revenue, we plow back into that development team and then continue to expand it because we're ahead of everybody. And the way we stay ahead is by reinvesting every dollar we make. All right. Um, now, Kyle, at the end of last year, I remember we had a lot of good conversation about this at the bank because we're a community bank. We're small. Um, but we decided to do this. And... Um, what were some of the, what were some, what's some of the data that you pulled together and we looked at it and we said, this is going to work? Well, uh, when I, again, first met Brian and we started talking and, uh, great concept, he had done this before, um, had good projections, but we came around to the thing that all bankers are going to look for and that's collateral. Well, in Brian's case, fortunately from the successful sale of his, pri his prior company, he had invested. He owned some land. He had, you know, some available real estate. So, you know, I was able to say, okay, we've really got something here because typically in a startup environment, you're, you're really challenged as a banker to say, well, there's not a lot of collateral. We're relying on the future. You know, there's just a lot of variables here that we have to try to work through. In his case, collateral, check it off. Experience, check it off. He, he had that. So now we're just focused on how viable is the product and how viable is, is his, the, the staff that he's put together to be able to execute what it is that they want to do. Now, another community bank, Kyle, in your humble opinion, would they have done this deal? Uh, nah, it, it would have been challenging. I mean, I, Brian and I had a good introduction from a, from a, uh, a, a former banker that I knew well. And I trusted, Brian trusted him to make the introduction so that it came together in a fashion that, hey, if, if Jess is, is introducing me to this guy, I know he's solid. I know this is a, you know, a, 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 good, a good client. Perhaps I could just jump in there sure. because um, we, I obviously, you know, looked at how was I going to capitalize this business. 
one of the things is, do I want to actually go down the venture capital route and try and sell my soul or, you know, create promises that somebody would believe in? Do I do it, look at a banking relationship and so forth? And w one of the discussions I had was with some larger banks, uh, which I'd been banking with, um, you know, ever since I came to, to Atlanta here. They bought South Trust and, and whatnot. Um, and it was just impossible because... And that's something that I've really had confirmed. You talk about, we talked about you know, some of the secrets, is the relationship with your bank as a small business, especially as a, as a small entrepreneurial base business, is based on people. And the larger banks, in my, in my view, have people, and they call them small business bankers or whatever the case may be, and they come and they shake your hand and they smile, and they, but they can't do anything for you because if you don't check the checkboxes exactly the way that their form is laid out, you're just out of luck. And, and that was the key thing, you know, with working with Kyle, is that he could actually say, no, well, I don't have a form like that. I want to understand your business. And going from understanding our business, then am I credible? So it's relationships and credibility. Am I credible? Yeah, I've done it before. I did this. And most importantly in, in being credible is the things that I said were going to happen in the future in terms of sales and forecasts and things have actually happened. Mm -hmm. And then now, now, you, now you're talking about credibility and how, you, how you're going to then check off the, the due diligence and so forth, uh, which a bigger bank just can't do. Um, I, I'm going to go back to your, your products. Do you patent your products? I used to, um, but I don't anymore. And the interesting reason for that is that I've just found through experience is focus on being faster, better, cheaper. Bring it to business, bring it to market faster, be better and be less expensive. And uh, when, soon after I arrived here, we actually filed a patent suit based on some technology. This was you know, a long time ago. And uh, I actually seated a jury in downtown Atlanta mm -hmm. on a, in a patent infringement suit. And we lost at summary judgment. And our little company at the time, I was in with some other guys, we spent a quarter of a million dollars in legal fees mm. because the lawyers were just telling us, this is a slam dunk. Just give us some more money. We're going to make you a fortune. And, and it didn't work out. So you had trouble defending your patent. Well, it, in fact, a patent is only really any good if you've got the finances to litigate it. And, and today, technology really only has a life of about three to five years anyway, right? Absolutely. And, you, and, you, and, and you'd be so business worrying about what you've patented. I mean, I, we invent a lot of things and the applications of new technology and things. And we, we just say focused. Uh, we, we make sure that we're not in, uh, contravening anybody else's patents. And so there, there are some times where you might want to do patents as a defensive patent. But the idea that you're going to get some kind of financial benefit out of patenting uh, technology things, I, I, I don't really go along with that. I, I share your opinion. Um, however, we've had some other people on the show who've said otherwise. And I, I think what they do is they spend a year or so getting a patent, and that's a year they should have been out selling their product. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, your current, your, one of your current products, I was just fascinated by this, if we just take the typical intersection. All right. So what we, what we do is... So everybody uh, imagine a, your stoplight out there at the Medlock and Abbott's Bridge. How about that? All right. So, so we, what, what we have is in the, as we've been deploying intelligent transportation systems over the last 15 years, the departments of transportation are finding they're just much harder to operate and run and keep going than you'd think. And so, for example, is the power reliable? Well, that sounds obvious, but the answer is nobody knows. 
Uh, they all have communications, either via fiber or some other communication thing. How well is that working? And the answer is nobody knows. So what we do is we, we use the Apple methodology of having a piece of embedded hardware, uh, which we put out in the field in the traffic cabinets or in the signs or in the cameras or, or so forth, which manages the device. We then use uh, either wired Wi-Fi or cellular communications to bring that data up into the cloud over using internet technologies. Uh, and then have cloud software, which can make it easy for people to then operate these systems compared with the old days when you'd have to buy a, you know, a, a, a license and have your own servers and install it on all your clients. And you'd have a nightmare of an IT function uh, to keep all your software going. That, that's just a 1990s kind of approach. We all focused on internet-based. But in Marietta, things. you talked to us about a. Um, uh, you went to five different places where information was getting sent. Uh, you know, someone had to deal with if the power was out. Someone had to deal. Somebody other department whether the traffic light was actually working. Yeah, we've got I mean, a, we've got a very nice um, system in in Marietta, Georgia. Here, it's, it's close to home, and there and uh, they're very positive about new technology in the Department of Transportation there in Marietta, and uh, and so so it was just a real difficulty for them. For example, there's a traffic controller in the in a cabinet as you drive past a traffic intersection. You see that yellow box? Yeah, uh, silver box. Generally, silver it's box. it's a silver box on the side of the road in, at a traffic intersection. Inside, there's a traffic controller. It's a computer. And back at uh, home base, there's a piece of software running on a PC that can talk to that controller. And so that needs a field device, it needs communications, it needs a central. But inside that traffic cabinet, there's also a thing that keeps this thing safe. So that's a conflict monitor that also needs some communications and needs some central software. Then you've got some network switches which will manage the communications and the fiber optics and so forth. And all of those need to be managed, and they've got central software. And then you've got traffic detectors, and that's from yet another company. And that gets managed as a silo on its own. So just keeping track of where these softwares are, and what's the username and password? And when you wanted to send you an email when something goes wrong, you've got to manage that in seven different places. And so what we're doing is just making it easy for people by having one system that can supervise all of this. All right. So I, as a learning, uh, trying to learn from all this, I guess those of us who are creative, every time we go by something, we probably ought to stop and think, how does this thing work? And can we make it better? I would think. Uh, that's something you did. I would never have thought to think, okay, what's in that silver box? I just assume... It goes on, it goes off. I don't know what's all in there, but if you stop and think for a minute, I mean, there is a cluster of stuff in there that you've been able to organize and manage, and how many traffic lights are there in the U.S.? 300,000. Only 300,000 is still a lot. But, uh, sure, but, but the same problem exists not only with traffic intersections, but with keeping your children safe outside schools. School beacons, we used to seeing school beacons. We're also used to seeing them going off when it's public holidays. And we used to see them not going on when people have Saturday school because they, the intelligence that's in them is just insufficient for the job. And so what we need to do is, A, bring school beacons and pedestrian safety and bicycle safety as part of these systems. 
And then you've got the business. Well, are they keep, you know, when school beacons, you can say, are they working? Most people think, well, are they flashing when they're supposed to flash? I don't mean that. I mean, are they actually keeping your children safe? So are they slowing the traffic down like you're supposed to? Well, the, all these technologies are available now, and the cost of deploying these technologies is just plummeting because we can make them all connected to the Internet. And so what we'll do is we're moving away from what, was, what I call opinion engineering. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, you had traffic engineers, and I, I'm a civil engineer, so I'm, I'm mm -hmm. one of them. And the way you design something is you say, well, I don't know, Joe, what do you think? Well, I don't know, I, th I think we should you know, do this. What do you think? Well, I think we should do that. And so that was this concept of opinion engineering where everything was based on experience. Fine, it served us well through the 70s and 80s and 90s. What we're moving now is to data-driven decision-making. So what we want to do is actually deploy our resources where they're going to be most effective. For example, deploy traffic calming and reduce, you know, speed reduction strategies outside the schools where people are speeding. And so that's where we spend the money where it's most needed. And we can also then see, is it working? Did, this, did the traffic speeds... Hold that thought for a minute. Sure. I just had an idea. Hold that thought. Um, Kyle, we saw his numbers. What, were, what impressed us about the way the documentation and the bookkeeping that, that Brian does? What, what, you know, what, what struck us well there? Well, he's got uh, his customers divided into A, B, and C. <laughs> uh, a is uh, nice people who pay. B is fairly nice people that pay okay, and C is not nice people, and we don't do business with them, <laughs> whether they pay or not. And we found that very refreshing. And, uh, and where does he focus his time? Well, he's looking at the future. Uh, he, he's got, you know, the accounts receivable, those are sales that have happened, but here's the next wave of orders that are coming in. And then beyond that, you know, he's got it projected out with, Folks they've talked to that are highly probable, uh, you know, it's, it's a pipeline is what it is, and, and thereby he's able to monitor what's coming in, how many of these boxes do we need to build, and uh, thus the need for the credit line. Because his production cycle is about eight weeks, but he sells on net 30 terms. So, but during that eight weeks and then the next 30 that it's, you're waiting to get paid, you got to pay your people. You got to buy more boxes. You know, there's 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 a cash gap between the production cycle and the cash coming in. So that's what we fulfill. And and we were able to very clearly see what that gap was based on the metrics that Brian had put together. So that that was very helpful to us. Um, we had a gentleman a couple weeks ago that talked about the need to build daily metrics. And what struck me about what Brian does is he's He's got his dashboard. You can clearly see um, how he makes money and what's happening on a daily, weekly basis to confirm the business is going in the, in the right direction. Yeah, I think that the key thing for a small business, especially a self-capitalized small business, is managing cash flow. And in fact, you know, make the point that companies like ours only go bankrupt for one reason, and that's we run out of cash. So it's actually not complicated. Everybody take, makes, makes it sound more complicated than this, but you run out of cash. So how do you manage the cash in a small business? Well, the key thing is that, you know, as Carl talked about, is the sales pipeline. So out of 
activity comes opportunity. Out of opportunity comes prospects. Out of prospects comes possibles. Out of possibles becomes probables. Out of probables become orders. And out of orders become cash. Sounds complicated, but each of one of those steps you better understand because and devote the time to that it takes. Because even though we're a technology guy, a company and, and I'm the technology guy that leads the technology effort, that's not where I focus actually my main effort. My main effort is customers. Getting out there, keenly understanding the customers' needs, keenly understanding their ability to place orders and their ability to pay. Because that all really drives the cash flow that, you know, and, and, and certainly that, that's where you guys come in and helping smooth that out. But you're also in that process. There's that word again, Mike, that we keep hearing, customers. Remember that? It keeps coming up on this show a lot. Um, I think there's probably some, something important about that word, customers. Um, but anyway, when you meet with customers, you're kind of developing technology for them to fix a problem, right? Yes, but what we, in fact, it's, it's deeper than that because our customers are all busy doing their jobs and, and, and departments of transportation and transportation officials and wh whoever they are, just the distributors in that business, uh, are all busy doing what they do today. What we're looking to do is develop technologies that makes their job more effective next year. So we're in position with the, and that just requires a little bit of insight. It requires understanding that the budgets are all under pressure and the number of people the transportation department can employ is declining while the needs are growing. Well, they all just busy doing that. Busy and they've got really tight budgets, I would think. And sure. And so what we're doing is saying, all right, that, that's where we come in. How can we do more with less? How can we, for example, use cloud computing? So they don't actually have to employ an IT specialist of their own because the budget for that got cut. Well, we can use Microsoft and Amazon and so forth uh, and IBM's clouds to provide that IT infrastructure. Oh, they don't need an IT department anymore. And so that's where we just help them then can focus on their job, which is making transportation more efficient and safer. And we can handle a lot of things. Uh, at, 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 and because we share that cost over a number of different customers, we actually do it at a lower cost. So they save money and they, and they need fewer people. Um, you're listening to On the Money, uh, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. This is Joe Moss. We're joined here by Brian Mulligan, who runs Applied Information and runs, it's a technology company, but he's just given us a lot of insight on what that, what that's all about. And and Kyle Smith is here, who is a senior vice president lender at Embassy National Bank, and actually is uh, um, Mr. Mulligan's banker. I want to come back to another thing we touched on, and that is the the crossing lane at the school. Right. Right. I can see now, I think maybe it just clicked on, I'm glad I talked to you, but I can see now how a smart car, a Google smart car, might work as I'm going through a school zone. Sure. I guess it could automatically just slow the car down. Absolutely. It knows where the school is. It knows where the crossing lanes are. And if there's an image in the crosswalk, it'll slam on the brakes and stop the car. Absolutely. It can see pedestrians. And so all of these things are what you know, are going to emerge over the next five to ten years. And, and you know, it's, it's just, I was at the uh, 
in Detroit at the World ITS Congress uh, in September, and Mary Barra from uh, General Motors and Bill Ford were, were from uh, from Ford were there. And it's quite interesting the things they announced. And one of the things they announced from GM is what they called Super Cruise, and that is in 2017 your Cadillac is going to drive itself on the freeway. Let's stop right there for a second. So we'll have driverless cars is pretty close to having. It's real. It's, it's real. Is it safer? Yes. How are we going to insure all that stuff? Are, there, are they trying to figure out all that kind of stuff, yeah. I guess? Yeah, there are implications everywhere. There are implications in uh, legislation. There are implications in liability. There's uh, implications in insurance. There's implications. It touches every aspect of our lives. And, and, and I'm just going to illustrate um, how we as humans are frightened by new things. And, uh, but currently about 30,000 Americans, uh, get, depending on how you measure it exactly, uh, get killed per year in motor vehicle accidents. And we just all accept that as well. That's just the way things are. But a driverless car, oh my God, that's going to be a, that's so frightening. But it's not really. Because yes, the safety systems have to be put in place. And yes, we as society needs to get used to it. And so there's a process for getting used to it. But, you know, and, and initially there'll obviously be drivers in the cars as well to take over when, when something confusing happens. But in principle... It's something confusing happens. <laughs> you know, to, to, to the co computer. Control-Alt-Delete-Quake. Yeah, blue screen of death or, or, <laughs> or something like that. But, but nonetheless, it's already happening. In other words, there's a lot of forward-facing radars emerging in new cars which can detect when you're about to have an accident and it will apply the brakes to reduce the severity well, of that Well, Onstar does that now, and I yeah. guess Mercedes does that now yeah. and a couple other different places. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Um, uh, I'm still fascinated by the fact that when I look on my navigation software on my new car, I can s Google is telling me exactly what the traffic is along that road. And I said, well, how do they do this? And I, I Googled that and found out they're tracking our Android phones. Yeah, it, it, it was started by a company called Waze, and, uh, which Google bought, and good for them. They made a lot of money. And it's, it's on the principle that it was crowdsourced data, that you'd voluntarily give up your location and the traffic in your area for the benefit of knowing the traffic in other people's area. So you could subscribe and volunteer, and, and your phone would then transmit your speed and position. And then uh, Waze would turn that into traffic information. And, and Google bought that, and that's, the, that's yeah. one of the sources on, on Google Maps. So eventually, I guess you could have a, a master controller up in the sky that is controlling the traffic up and down 85 in driverless automobiles. Well, interestingly, I mean, <laughs> I, yes and no. I mean, that's... Moves on to a whole other uh, topic, which is how computers developed in the 70s, where IBM mainframes operated on that basis. There was one master thing that did everything. And uh, God bless America. This is the great American competitive environment that networks of smaller computers have been shown to be much more effective. Mm -hmm. So uh, IBM's mainframes kind of went away. And the same thing applies you know, to your question about maybe there'll be a master computer in the, in the sky. And the answer is probably not. There'll be a gazillion small computers 
all in your uh, motor cars, coordinating your local and regional area, much more like a swarm of bees. And allowing... Kyle, go ahead, jump in. Well, I was say, there's a timely <clears throat> situation right now with the new speed limit signs on 285 mm-hmm. that people seem very frustrated with and confused. But I've read about it, and the theory is it, it's to tell you what's coming ahead. Hey, stop going 65. You need to be at 55 and 45 because ahead, that's what the traffic speed is. Well, people aren't as uh, reliable as computers. People say, the heck with that. I'm going to keep going 65. i I get there. And oops, I, er, I rear-end somebody. But the theory of it, if the smart cars were engaged with that system, I'm sure it would work to keep you out of a traffic jam. It would slow you down, but at least you wouldn't be bumper to bumper, bumping into people, and, and Brian, step in. But yeah, yeah, you know, the people are frustrated. You, you read in the paper all the time, all oh, those stupid variable speed limit signs. It's, it's well, just a matter of time. And, and, and Yeah, all the cars talking together saying, based on where we are on this road, we can all go 45 miles an hour and get to where we're going. That's the, the, it, it's, it's, in fact, slightly simpler and more complicated than that. The category is called active traffic management. And it's much more readily accepted in Europe than it is in America, interestingly enough, because people there accept that the government's entitled to manage your behavior for the benefit of all. A lot more people in America say, and we trade internationally, that's why I have this sort of perspective in these different places. Whereas in America, say, oh, no, we, we, we've got individual rights, you know, nobody can tell me what to do. To do. And so it's slower to be adopted here. But that's active traffic management. So what you've got is a set of speed limit signs that are going to do two things. First of all, they're going to prevent, reduce rear-end collisions. And a rear-end collision occurs when it increases in incidence when there's a whole bunch of stopped cars on the freeway on 285 and everybody comes barreling in it. That's at 80 probably miles the in. most expensive thing out there, isn't it? The rear end. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a significant course of injury and... and, and Body uh, repair and everything, and, yeah. And, and delay, because don't forget when you have an accident, now you've got everybody caught in the backup. So incident reduction, the time that... Reducing the number of incidents and the time of incidents is, is a key part of managing these freeways. So that's the first thing you're going to do is reduce uh, the, the speed of approaching vehicles and reduce the number of incidents and rear-end collisions. So you're making the road safer. So if you put it to you know, the people who are frustrated, are you, you, are you opposed to making the road safer? You know, nobody would say, no, I want the roads to be more well, dangerous. The, the objection is always, well, someone's going to know where I am. Well, there's going to be trade-offs, you know. Uh, and, and that, even that's an interesting thing, which the Internet is solving for us. There are all kinds of the Internet privacy is, is part of the, the, the business that's being dealt with as we're evolving to this new society. So that's an example, Kyle, of people just being threatened by change. But the first, the first thing is that, that makes the road safer. The second thing, interestingly enough, it actually makes the roads flow better if everybody travels at the same speed. And so what you try and do is reduce everybody's speed so everybody gets there quicker. Rather than somebody trying to go fast, then slam on the brakes, causes a, 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 like a ricochet of everybody stops, goes, and that's how you end up with the stop-go traffic on the freeways. You're trying to keep the freeway moving. Well, I'm all in favor of these automated cars because all I can think of is I'll probably be able to take a nap when I go home now. <laughs> I won't have to try to stay awake the whole time. That's the plan. <laughs> Well, we're out of time. I'm, this is a good show. We're going to have to have you back, Brian, and talk <laughs> about more it. of this kind of stuff. Um, tell everybody where they can find you, Brian. Yeah, we're at Applied Information. Uh, 
www.appinfoinc.com. Uh, and uh, look us up on the web. And uh, if you're interested in talking about entrepreneurial activities, then uh, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, B Mulligan at app, I-N-F-O-I-N-C.com. Um, and um, Kyle, um, for those people in the technology business that are listening and uh, have a desire to get a hold of you and talk to you about financing needs, um, how they get in touch with you? It's K Smith at embassynationalbank.com. Uh, direct line 770-500-1255. Be glad to talk with you. And uh, I, I just, you know, just to wrap it up, um, you know, Brian, I'm just fascinated talking to people like you, and, and it keeps coming back to the fact that folks like you, they have an idea, and the one thing they don't have is fear. And, and, how, do you, and how you remove the fear out of it, the equation to me is if we can figure that part of it out, that we'll be a lot more successful out there. Because I know that fear stops a lot of good ideas from happening. Just do it. Just do it. I think we've already tagged that one, right? Okay. <laughs> well, listen, um, this is uh, Joe Moss. You've been listening to On the Money and uh, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. It's been a great show, and uh, we'll see you next time. And Everybody, um, hey, take the fear out of the equation and be careful out there. See you next time. Thank you. Mm -hmm.